Welcome to episode two of our numeric episodes one through ten. We are struggling with the difficulties of contending with this material, which is so vast and so hard to grasp. But nevertheless, we shall make the attempt because that's what we do here at Fortune's Wheelhouse. (laughs) Fools go where angels fear to tread. (laughs) So number two, we'll be talking about, of course, the minors, the twos of tarot, two of wands, two of cups, two of swords, and two of pentacles or discs. We will be talking about majors by number as well as by reduction. So that means the high priestess. Hmm, Here's where it gets complicated. Whichever one you consider 11. (laughs) Yes, justice or lust, (laughs) depending, I guess. And then judgment, also known as eon. Did I miss any this time? Not that I'm aware of. (laughs) There isn't. But then we have the paths that come out of. Yeah, we do have the paths that come out of Chokhmah. So that is the fool, which we've talked about before. The empress. So we have the emperor or the star, depending on which system you're using. And then we have the Hierophant. So yeah, so we'll be dealing with alternative systems in this episode, which seems somehow appropriate. (laughs) Oh, and then court. Yep, the Knights. Knights of Wands, Knight of Cups, Knight of Swords, Knight of Discs in Thoth, but King of Wands, King of Cups, King of Swords, and King of Pentacles in Rider-Waite-Smith, depending which system that you use. Okay, there's going to be a lot of disambiguation going on. (laughs) So here we are in the world of twos. And we talked about in the world of one, which was our previous episode, how the universe became aware of itself and the universe as mind or consciousness. And now we're going to be talking a lot about of consciousness becoming aware of another. We're going to be talking about balances, dualities, opposites, Um, And the idea that opposites only exist really in relationship to each other. Uh, Right. Can't have one without the other. (laughs) So basically, you can think of pretty much any opposition you like and apply it to a magical model based on two. I saw this big list in the Eastern Mysteries, David Hulse's book, in the Mm -hmm. section on Hebrew alphabet. There's this huge thing he talks about as binary Kabbalah, and it's kind of based on the Zohar and the idea that Gevura and Chesed represent the basic opposites. And the list of opposites goes on for pages. <laughs> well, you know, that's that's really interesting because, I mean, we didn't even touch on this in the l- last episode, but there is this idea that no Sephira stands on its own. They all have to be expressed as a pair, you know. Mm, um, yes. So with Keter, I mean... It's kind of unique in that it, you can you can look at it in terms of the uh, following one, Hokma. You can look at it in terms of with the Ain, or you can look mm-hmm. at it in terms of with Malkut. But Absolutely. the contrast between pairs is what defines them. Yeah, and you you can make an argument also for Keter Bina, white and black. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you know, with, with Hokma, the obvious pair is Bina. But you mm-hmm. can also pair um, Hokuma very easily with Keter because there's a definite sure. relationship there. I guess if we think of Keter as a point, as of the one as a point, it's pretty common to kind of think of number two as a line. You know, mm-hmm. the distance, either the distance between two points or as a vector, you know, the distance from a point to any other place. Right. Like Crowley's Naples arrangement called it the point distinguished from one other. Exactly. Which then makes a line. Another thing. And that, that connection between one and two is pretty obvious because the line is the number one. <laughs> you know, right. like it's almost like Hokma <laughs> is number one, even though it's number two. Yeah, there is a lot of that on and off symbolism with Keter and Hokma. Um, so even though we kind of talked about the zero as existing outside of the tree in the veils of nothingness, it can also be thought of as 
Keter and Chokmah, zero and one. Yeah, and then we also get into the idea of yin and yang, of above and below, evens and odds. And um, we didn't even talk about in the last, the one episode about Aleph being the one, but yet here we have Bet being two, but it's also the one in a sense. You yes. know how it's, yeah, it's interesting. It is, and kind of baffling and frustrating too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the, the sort of idea of the point distinguishable from one other also gives you this idea that we're going to be talking about a lot, I think, of the gaze of the observer and the observed, the watcher and the watched. Uh, the self and the other. You know, I think because we've moved off the middle pillar, that's another reason we have, have introduced this idea of polarity. The pillar of force is where we have now arrived. We are now arriving into a world that's divided into force and form, into active and passive. Before we get totally into Kabbalah, yeah, we should just talk a little bit about number and yeah. the number two in general. So... Pythagoras considered the two the door between the one and the many. It can be expressed as the Vesca Piscus, where you have two circles and that they overlap and they form this portal. And right. from there, all the other shapes can emerge. If you look at that intersection, the portal in the Vesca Piscus, you can you know draw a line from one side to the other. And that becomes the dyad. Right. The Pythagoreans had this idea of the indefinite dyad, which is matter, essentially, everything that's not spirit. But they represented that with that intersection between the circles. Yeah, that shape of the um, Vesca Piscus with the line drawn through the center, that's one way of making the form into equal parts because that's what the two as a number is all about it it can only divide be divided as one and one two equal parts we talked a little bit about in the last episode how the shape that you can draw with one line is the circle well if you want to take the line we were talking about the two as the line because it's between two points rather than one mm-hmm. you draw a line through that circle and now you've got two equal parts of the circle. But there's different ways of dividing a circle into equal parts. So it can be the straight line through the circle, like that cosmic on-off button, um, Mm -hmm. or it can be that way where you take the circle and put a square in it and put another circle inside the square, like we talked about in the last one, and you have a circle that's exactly half the diameter of the outer circle on the inside, and that's another way of dividing it into equal parts. And then there's the yin-yang symbol. That's Mm -hmm. another way of dividing a circle into two equal parts. Yeah, the idea that you have each thing has a little bit of its opposite within it. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then there are the shapes that you can draw, the closed shapes. So before we had the closed shape you can draw with one line would be either a circle oval or lemniscate, whereas with two lines, the closed shapes you can make are a heart, which is pretty appropriate for yeah. the two, which is about connection. The vesica piscus, which is the two circles we just talked about. Mm-hmm. The mandorla, which is that almond shape that or eye shape, depending on mm-hmm. which way it's rotated, that's um, in between the two circles. That can also be drawn as its own shape with two lines. Mm-hmm. Or the crescent moon. Yes, which can be drawn with two lines, which is also appropriate in, when you consider the priestess as being the card of two. Oh, that's really cool. And I also think it's interesting, we tend to divide two into as above, so below in hermeticism, but the part that we sometimes don't include is as within, so without. So there's the inside of the mm. circle, but also everything outside of the circle in some sense. Right. Yep, that's like that second shape we talked about. Right. I was looking at um, William Wynne Westcott's book on number. This isn't his own. This is something he gets from Greek philosophy because I've seen it there too. He calls the number two audacity because (laughs) it was the first number that had the audacity to divide from unity, to separate from the one. And then it was also called anguish because it, it, it's said to be insatiable because it's always seeking the other so that it can get back to unity. Yeah, I saw that as well. So that was from uh, from Westcott? 
Yeah, William Wynne Westcott's book on number, it's either called Number or Numbers, I forget which. Mm -hmm. That concept precedes him, but it is in his book. And then there's also the idea, because we are dealing with uh, issues of mirroring, uh, we can talk again about zero equals two a little bit, the idea that that's simply that... So if you take one and negative one, that cancels out, zero. cancels each other's out zero. But the absolute value of one and negative one is, is one two. plus one is two. Right. Yeah. So and that's what um, Crowley was trying to get at with that zero equals two formulation. It can be either um, su subtractive or additive. Right. And then there's also the idea that two is somehow negative or evil yes. like if if one is good then two is evil just it's kind of like the idea of manifestation itself i think crowley called it a stain you know two is yeah two is birth two is that portal that opens up that we pass through and it's automatically not as pure or something like that yeah the idea I guess... that two is somehow a, a a negative force in some ways right and the basis of dualistic religions and philosophies that there has to be a an absolute and equal evil to go with the absolute and equal good. Yeah. Which, you know, I think is something that we see in Manichaeanism, something we see in Gnosticism, and something which is a profound strain that runs through Western occultism, you know, this idea that the the question of whether you reject the shadow or embrace the shadow is kind of fundamental to these dualistic ways of thinking and the source of many fights within our community. <laughs> we can start thinking of some of the astrological metaphors that go along with the idea of two. For example, the idea of sect, nocturnal and diurnal sect. Also, the idea of, so opposition, the idea of an opposition in astrology is 180 degrees or dividing the circle exactly yes. in half. So I guess that would make one the conjunction Mm -hmm. which yes which is actually a zero <laughs> yes <know> I mean? <laughs> zero degrees yeah yes <laughs> yeah and you know and i think the metaphor that astrologers always seem to use is that you know even though an opposition is a quote-unquote hard aspect it is something that is at some level desirable because the one planet sees the other Mm. You know, they, they, they can exist in tension and in relationship to one another. Also, yes. that, of course, brings up the idea of the hemispheres in astrology. You can have either northern and, and southern above and below, or, or you can have eastern and western. Right. Uh, the self and, and the other or mm -hmm. the, I guess, the public and the private sectors yeah. of the horoscope. You know, for us in tarot, these kind of opposites are li really ways that we think about the cards in so many different ways in esoteric tarot, you know, we're constantly using, um, you know, active principles of fire and air versus passive, so-called passive principles of earth and water. We're often talking about archetypal male and archetypal female. It really colors the way that we understand the cards in relationship to one another. Yeah, and that's true, because like, when you're looking at an astrological sign or an astrological house it's always helpful to look at its opposite to understand it more fully so you look at the whole axis of say leo and aquarius or yeah. the fifth house in relationship to the 11th house and by looking at both of them you see how one defines the other by this idea exactly. of opposites kind of expressing each other the other side of each other yeah, and I think that kind of, I guess you'd call it dialectic thinking, allows, it really clarifies things, you know. I mean, I think in the context of reading for clients, I often will kind of have a space for what would be helpful to do and what would totally not be helpful to do and you should avoid at all costs just because it really helps sharpen, you know, the contrast mm -hmm. and make it clearer how to how to move ahead. And this is strange, but I've strange, but I've seen in my own charts and reading charts that a lot of times when something is transiting one house, it's expressing in its opposite house, which I've never really mm -hmm. understood why yeah. or how that is, but it seems to happen more often than you'd be surprised how often yeah. that happens. Yeah, so it sort of activates its opposite. Yeah. 
The other cool thing about two, we didn't mention this in one, but one is a prime number and so is two, and two is the only even prime number. Right. Out of all the primes. The other cool little factoid that I saw when I was looking at this stuff was that the tarot primes, if you add them all up, so they're 1, 2, 3, 5, 7, 11, 13, 17, and 19, Mm -hmm. they add to 78. (laughs) Of course. Of course they do. (laughs) That is really cool. Games with numbers. You know, I used to be an accountant, and sometimes because I'm also a, I guess, I guess you would say a, a mystic or an occultist. I used to get a lot mm-hmm. distracted sometimes trying to do accounting, and then the numbers themselves would start speaking to me. <laughs> there, therein lies the path to madness. You have a missed vocation as a, a Kabbalist working with Gamecha and Notarikon, too. <laughs> you know, we were talking a little bit about how we can think of this as zero and one or one and two. They're kind of similar but there's also right well two is really one it's just one divided exactly and two is really zero too (laughs) and one is really zero (laughs) (laughs) yeah and i think that that's something we're gonna just sort of see a lot in terms of the themes of two that while it implies balance it implies equality it implies opposition and the sort of two equal entities compared but it also in terms of two equals one, you know, it also has all these corollaries in terms of masculinity, force, activity, mm-hmm. you know, um, directionality. Yeah, that's interesting because two seems very feminine, and yet it's mm-hmm. also the first. It's you know, if you look at Hokma as being the masculine division of Keter, in a sense, right. you know, so it's 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 right. interesting that it's. It's got those contradictions within it already. You know, and I think that that's one of the keys to understanding Chokmah is this idea of impulse, right? You know, the impulse towards making something or creating something, the impulse that will be received and formed in Bina. Yeah, the, sp- the spark, the uh, the direction, the um, the once you have the light of consciousness in Keter, it has to go somewhere. <laughs> and, mm. and that's what Chokmah is, the impulse to go somewhere. Um you know, when we talk about the wisdom of Chokmah, it's not like the wisdom of having thought about something for a really long time. <laughs> it's the right. wisdom that sort of erupts from recognizing something suddenly, you know, the insight, the recognition, it seems to come as if from nowhere. From nothing. <laughs> from nothing, exactly. Papus, or Papus, he called Chokmah divine wisdom, and Levi called it wisdom equilibrated by intelligence which you know i have i have kind of difficulties with these elaborate titles and names because they just sort of become increasingly abstract to you really can't think till they all sound anymore. alike yeah but i guess the kind of interesting thing about the associations of hokma is that you know we talked about how the keter is the prima mobile but hokma is associated with the entire Zodiac. And I remember, you know, being really confused by that when I saw the first model, you know, just on the tree, and I saw what the correlations were. And it didn't make any sense to me that there were the seven planets, and then there was, you know, and then Zodiac, and then Primo Mobile. It just seemed like they were making that up. But it really does make sense if you think of, uh, if you look back to the concentric model, which classical thinkers and medieval and renaissance thinkers used the idea that you go from the earth in the center to moon and then mercury and then venus and then sun and then mars and then jupiter and then saturn in terms of this is all in terms of apparent orbital speed from the earth and then the sphere of the zodiac because that's where the constellations appear to be they appear to move slower than Saturn. The fixed stars and the constellations. Yeah. The circle of all that. You know, it's interesting. We were talking in the last one about how difficult it is to assign the outer planets. And all of these outer planets, their orbits, well, except for Pluto, all the Mm -hmm. outer outer planets, their orbits are confined within the zodiac. I think I read somewhere that Pluto is the only one that somehow escapes that boundary which is interesting in itself. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, I see what you mean in terms of the belt 
of the zodiac yeah that defined space that we perceive from here and i read also somewhere the zodiac described as and the, the zodiac and the fixed stars as a positive interruption of the negative continuum of nui and i thought that was really beautiful <laughs> a positive interruption of yeah, the, the negative star, continuum. The stars themselves the stars as being a positive interruption of the negative continuum continuum of nui that makes I, a lot like of sense, that's beautiful actually. yes it reminds me of this idea that i think we talked about i don't remember in which discs episode or maybe it was a saturn episode the idea that the stars are pinpricks in the fabric of space that allow the light of the divine to shine through because if we could see the full light of the divine we'd be you know annihilated <laughs> and that the 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 firmament the blackness of the firmament or new eat i suppose is essentially a covering a protection for us so that you know the in this model the influence of the stars is controlled and regulated and filtered down to us through these spheres. So we're not blinded. Well, that's interesting itself in terms of the, the colors, because, um, you know, the, the queen scale color of Hokma is gray, and mm -hmm. that's a veiling of the light of mm -hmm. Keter, a necessary and yes. in, in a step between the, the, the three stages of light you know, the white of Keter and the, the blackness of Binah are the two extremes. And then in the middle, you have this mixture or veiling. Yeah, it's kind of like of the, gray. You know, the atmosphere around the earth that protects us. Mm. In a sense, you know, when we think about Chokma, we're often thinking of sky metaphors. Should we talk a little bit about correspondences of Chokma? Are we ready yeah. for that, do you think? Well, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Got to start somewhere. <laughs> I guess so. It has to be done sometime. Yeah. So the virtue and vice, well, virtue mainly. We're talking yeah, about devotion. devotion. Yeah. And then in some models, I've seen that there is a vice of evil, although it's often the case that we simply say there is no vice, just as there is mm. no vice in Keter. Right. Yeah. And the vision is the vision of God face to face. So Yeah, which, that's interesting, isn't that it? That is interesting wording, isn't it? So that we talked in the Keter episode how the image, the magical image is that ancient bearded king, and we only see the lit side of his face. We see him in profile, whereas the image of Hokma is, again, a male bearded you know, mature male bearded figure, but we see him face to face. Yeah, that relates back to this idea that this is the beginning of the pillar of force and that it's an archetypal masculine principle that we're talking about. One of the ways that we contrast Chokmah and Bina is the idea in Hermetic Kabbalah that Chokmah is the origination of the masculine principle and Bina is the origination of the feminine principle. And I think that's why we see the bearded face in Chokmah. And I think it's a mature woman in, in Bina mm -hmm. as the magical image. The um, weapons kind of weird. For Crowley, he had it as inner robe of glory. Right. That's, um, that's be kind of in uh, juxtaposition to Bina, which is the outer robe of concealment. Yeah, I'm wearing the fleece vest of warmth right now. Yes. <laughs> and well, the, I kind uh, of think of the outer uh, robe of concealment is about the idea of us being, in, or all things, being cloaked in form. Hokma relating to that inner robe of glory, that's more of the, the inner light or um, the essence, the spirit of something as opposed to its form, because there's no form mm -hmm. yet. Well, there's no form until you get below the abyss, but in in Bina, at least there's the idea of form, whereas yes. it doesn't exist in Hokma yet. There's right. just the spirit. One thing that's important to remember about these magical weapons is that they have real-life counterparts. I mean, we're talking about ritual tools here. Right, um, that would be the lingam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess so. I mean... You know, I've uh, seen the wand too, but the wand, I think, that's regard comes yeah. more down in um, Hesed. Um, although I could see the wand and the lingam as definitely being parallel. <laughs> <laughs> <He's>... <laughs> 
so Regardie has the wand for uh, for Hakma and the scepter for scepter and crown for um, Kessid. But you know what is the difference between a wand and a scepter? Um, and then of course Crowley has wand and scepter down in 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 Kessid as well. Mm-hmm. So right, you know, and, so and has so, Lingam in in Hokma. Yeah, I mean, basically, both for Crowley and his successors, we're talking about robes and crowns and wands and swords and lamps and perfumes and altars and circles and triangles. It's basically the description of what you need to do uh, ceremonial magic and divide it up into 10, ten pieces right. of equipment. <laughs> but- and I think these ideas of you know, masculine and feminine and positive and negative can be misleading. It might even be better to express it as dynamic and receptive or something like that, you know? Yeah, I think that that's true because, you know, we tend to, when we, when we talk about binaries in sort of mundane life, we tend to talk about male and female, but that's horribly reductive. We're not really talking about human male and human female when we talk about archetypal masculine and feminine we're talking about principles as you say of activity and receptivity there's no real reason that they have to be gendered the god name of chokmah is ya just spelled yod hey the first two letters of yod hey vav hey but i've also seen it as the mm-hmm. full tetragrammaton oh have yod, you? Hey, vav hey, and and also as yehovah i've seen that i think even in 777 it says both yehovah and ya and hmm. um yod hey vav hey right which makes sense because ya is just a shortened form of the yod, nickname hey, vav, hey. <laughs> of the big name yeah and, and the idea is also that the big name is unpronounceable so you kind of right. have to turn it into a nickname or a short form that is okay for mortal tongues. I mean, typically in Hebrew, if you see the divine name, you don't say it, you say Adonai, which of course phonetically mm. has nothing to do with the right. tetragrammaton. But yeah, and I think in Hermetic Kabbalah, Yah or um, the tetragrammaton in Chokmah as a God name is is kind of meant to suggest power or quote unquote masculine force, that principle of activity and generation. We didn't mention this correspondence in the last one, but for Keter, the order of angels associated was was oh, the yeah. four holy living creatures, which was kind of cool because it again brings in that idea of Malkut, the four elements. Yeah. But for Hokma, the uh, order of angels are wheels, which I thought was really cool just because, um, you know, wheels are oh, the cycles, O-fanim. like mm-hmm. the zodiac wheel and, you know, yeah. um, so it seemed to fit. Yeah, that sounds like it's from the vision of Ezekiel. Yeah, this whirling of of stars or cycles and actions. And the colors, which you talked about a little bit before, are yeah, we okay, yeah. So we only mentioned the queen scale color of gray being Mm -hmm. as the um the veiling of light, or (laughs) I've Mm -hmm. seen it described as semen, (laughs) the color (laughs) of semen, because the male principle. Of course, you do. I've seen it described as you know cloud cloudiness um, mm-hmm. over the over the light, mm-hmm. and then so that's the queen scale color. But the king scale color is a pure soft blue, which of course makes you think mm-hmm. of the sky. And there's a lot yeah. of sky symbolism in Hokama because of the uh, correspondence of the zodiac itself. Uh, yeah. Then you get into the prince scale, and it's blue pearl gray like mother of pearl so again Mm -hmm. that seems like a cloudy sky with some kind of iridescence to it yeah it's the mixture between the pure soft blue and the gray and the gray you know when you when you see mother of pearl and you think of the idea of iridescence you ever artists will know what i'm talking about because you can make gray called prismatic gray and Mm -hmm. it's basically a blending of the three primaries Mm. which turns into a gray, but you can still see hints of the red, the yellow, and the blue within it. And it's, mm. it gets a really beautiful layered effect. And, wow. I, I, and that, I, of course, predicts what we're going to see in the in the princess scale. Exactly. The white flecked with red, blue, and yellow, um, which, mm-hmm. you know, it seems like that's the, the red, blue, and yellow being the primaries. The white flecking them seems... Like it's trying to describe the action of Hokma, which is to to initiate and fertilize. So that pure white 
of Keter has now been, uh, I guess you'd say, inseminated <laughs> with the uh, the building blocks of the elements, the red, That's yellow, right. and the blue. That's right. There's really no other way to express that. Exactly. <laughs> right. This is another one of those situations where because we're above Bina or preceding Bina, we can't assign an exact color to it that can be correlated to a sound, but in the same way that the Hermetic Kabbalists assigned the so-called lost chord to Keter, they assigned the echo to... Um, oh, that's cool. To Which kind of makes sense, right? Because right. It, it's the reflection back of the sound itself. Yeah, just like two is the reflection of the one. Right, right. I thought that was kind of Resonance. Yeah, that's neat. Another thing that you sometimes see is the idea that the supernals are um, the three syllables in in Om, the alpha, the ayin, and the mem. You know? mm. So sort of an that would make the ayin sound here kind of an O sound, Aum. Okay, um, should we talk a little bit about the majors associated with it yeah why not oh one thing we didn't mention are the um we talked a bit in keter about you know the, the titles mm-hmm. there's a, there's some cool ones uh for hokma as well but i found the power of yetzira which was interesting Ooh. Mm-hmm. ab and the abba as meaning huh? father um, al- the Aleph sure, Bet yeah. AB for Ab, and then Abba as being the Aleph Bet and its reflection. Yeah, which I thought and was that interesting. would be reflected across to to Bina as Ima, so the father, the great father and mother. Yeah, and then the other one, of course, is the, the supernal father, um, and then Tetragrammaton as a cycle. So the idea of Tetragrammaton as being this cycle of creation that we've talked about before how you know the the father and the mother combine to make the prince who marries the princess and the princess goes back and awakens the eld of the all father and all starts so right. the idea of cycles are an inherent part of understanding hokma yeah which kind of goes back to that idea of the wheels or the ophanim that you mentioned before it's kind of interesting and then i saw also um the yod of tetragrammaton which makes sense um mm-hmm. where they say the yod is in hokmah the tip of the yod is in keter and oh, then another thing that ties it back to keter again is sometimes it's called the crown of creation that's kind of hard to get your head around isn't it i mean yeah that sounds exactly like it would be a reference to keter it does yeah, yeah. and then there's uh i think i also saw hand of god so mm. Which, again, that seems very Keter-like, but I guess if you think of what sets the Zodiac in motion, the hand of God, but that seems like Keter again. But again, they're, mm-hmm. so, they're, in, they're so intimately tied that it's kind of hard to completely s- separate them. Although when you say the hand of, the hand of God and creation, I, I kind of had to laugh because one of the gods associated with Hokmah is, is Atum, who was mm-hmm. said to create the universe through an act of masturbation. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was just going to (laughs) say, there's all these hand and wand metaphors. I'm looking at one of these huge charts for what Hawk was associated with. And the symbols are the lingam, the phallus, the yod of tetragrammaton, the hand, the the phallus, the standing stone, the tower, the uplifted rod of power. (laughs) 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 And the straight line. So, yeah, I mean, I I don't think that that's inaccurate. (laughs) Yeah. But it's interesting because the gods associated are not just these I guess you'd call them preapic gods, but yeah. then there's also goddesses associated um, mm-hmm. with it that are like um, Athena, who sprang from mm-hmm. the head of Zeus, just as Hokma right. sprang from the, I guess, the head or the crown of of Keter. I saw that, and in, and uh, um, Isis Gardena. as a personification of wisdom, and Mott. Uh, Mott. also um, Nuit as the zodiac, mm-hmm. Uranus as you know, kind of associated with the heavens and the zodiac and the Titan Uranus, I mean. Yeah. Although some t- Regardi did give a give Uranus to Hokma in that sort of mixed up system of modern attributions of the Tree of Life, which I think we talked about not agreeing with in the last episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there's, um, yeah. So it's just interesting that there's both male and female 
gods and goddesses attributed, even though it seems m- lean towards the masculine. Right. Oh, and then there's Janice, the two-faced. So that, two-faced that's kind god. of interesting. Yeah, the two-faced god. Yeah. Yeah, and I've also seen Chakma as associated with Purusha, um, you know, the mm-hmm. activating principle versus Prakriti, the, the, the idea of matter, mm-hmm. um, which I think would be a Chakma Bina kind of opposition. All right, so majors? Majors, okay. Majors. So, so by number? By mm-hmm. number first, then by number path? Number first. 2, 11, and 20. Two, eleven, and 20. So, yeah, so, well, I guess... You know, the priestess we've talked about a little bit before, but in the context of this kind of the balance and self and other qualities of dual qualities of Chakma, she can you can think of her as kind of the unconscious and the conscious. So it's like the self, but also the unknown hidden other within the self. Right, like the two pillars, the white pillar and the, yeah. the black pillar that we see in the card. Yeah, or the the two halves of life, the waking half and the sleeping half. Mm-hmm. Or what's in front of the veil and what's behind the veil. And then we have either justice or lust. You know, I mean, lust clearly is a way of connecting self and other. <laughs> you know, there is. Yeah. The, um, right. That, Babylon riding the beast. Yeah. Yeah. The idea that the life force exists in the sexual tension or chemistry that exists between two opposites attracting. And when I say opposites, I don't necessarily mean by gender. Or you can think about it as justice, which is um, justice as 11, and which, of course, is about the equality or the balance between Right, between the two pans of the scale. Right, keeping them um, measured and equal and fair. Um, Or naturally sort of finding the equilibrium between them, which is more of an adjustment concept. And then judgment, which is so interesting, because just thinking about it as a word, we often think of judgment as implying the judgment of oneself by another, right? You know, the idea that there's some kind of evaluative mechanism, you know, either uh, the divine or just other people who force us to become self-conscious, force us to evaluate ourselves against some other metric, but it can also be the judgment of the self by the self, the self as its own other. One of the meanings of the judgment card I've come to work with most is how you identify, how you think of yourself as a person, how you want to think of yourself as a person, and how you grow into that self, even if you don't begin there. So I think there's a tension between the possible and the actual self in the judgment card. And I'm not entirely sure how that inflects um, in the Eon card as much in Thoth, but there's definitely that Hadith tension of self and other. I think in the Aeon card, just the idea of Aeons as parts of a cycle or uh, cycles kind of relates to Hokma as being cyclic and uh, like, like the Zodiac is a cycle. The Aeons are segments of the great year. So it's like a 25,000 plus Mm. period that then gets divided into roughly 2000 year periods of time that are that are so vast but it, again it's it's about these these really large cycles that makes sense and then we have we have majors connected to chakma on the paths and again we have some some differences there we have the fool between chakma and keter the empress between chakma and bina the emperor or the star between chakma and tiferet and then the hierophant between Hakma and Kesed. So I think that each of these can really be expressed as mm-hmm. a tension between binaries in a way. I mean, mm-hmm. we talked about the fool as uh, aware and non-aware states of mind, which is sort of the essence of that Keter Hakma, um, I guess awareness of oneself versus awareness defined by another is another way to put it between uh, Keter and Chakma, between ignorance and knowledge, dual and non-dual states. Yeah, and the fool is being both nothing and all potential. Exactly. Two exactly. opposites. We 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 kind of skipped over with the Aeon card. It is kind of like that, too, because we, we, yes. we have 
you know, Nui and Hattie, the center and the circumference, and then how they combine in, in the child forest. Right, right. Which is why on your Eon card, you have that symbol of this point and circle at the bottom because of, it's the way of representing Hadith and Nui. And then, so anyway, um, back to the others. Then we have <laughs> the, the Empress. Empress. Which is, of course, you know, that... The gate of heaven. (laughs) The gate of heaven between force and form. um, The father and the mother. The portal of life and death. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And the, you know, to use the generative metaphors, you've got, you know, the seed and then the womb that receives it. Um, Mm -hmm. To use the more sort of conceptual model, you've got the insight of Chakma, but then the understanding of Bina. So Bina is often described as the palace of mirrors, that which takes this concept offered by Chokma and reflects on it and develops it until it's understood. So that's yeah, it's a really idea. that's an interesting path, this this connection between force and form. I think we talked about and I forget which episode we talked about <laughs> it in, but the idea of form as being force locked into a pattern of its own making. Yes. And force being form that is broken. And this idea of, you know, the manifest and the unmanifest and birth and death and the path of the empress as being the gate of heaven between that that connection between the upper and lower parts of the tree or between life and death even. We talked about that in one of the Ace episodes. I was just looking at it. So that idea of force as form broken and form as force locked into a pattern locked into a pattern right and this of course is our first horizontal path as well so it's kind of the first path that's aware of that binary and trying to mediate between it um yeah there's uh it's in the ace of swords episodes which was like almost two hours long where we we, oh yeah there was that one huh (laughs) yeah we talked about force taking a self-directed pattern as birth and form breaking apart as death it does yeah. remind me of the Empress card, that, that mediation yeah. between force and form happening. Right. Which kind of brings right. in the idea of dot, too, but that would mm-hmm. be, have to be its own special episode because that is one confusing thing to talk about. It sure <laughs> is. And, you know, actually in, in Chabad and in Orthodox Kabbalism, sometimes they don't even talk about Keter at all. They just use dot instead. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I could see that. Really confusing. Well, we'll talk about it more when we get to Bina, I guess. But, you know, but the idea that a form is not just a passive receptacle, that it gives a shape to reality uh, is something that I think is kind of important about the Empress. You mm. know, it's, we kind of get bound up in these ideas of active and passive, but, uh, but they are interdependent. Yeah, it's important to see that her path is between right. the two. Right, right, exactly. And then we have either the emperor or the star. And in terms of opposites, I'll do the emperor one if you'll do the star. <laughs> um, yeah, boy, opposites. I'd have to think about that. Yeah. Well, I guess I guess the dweller between the waters. You know, well, we have the that. waters of the firmament, firmament, and we have the waters, the actual earthly waters, and the the sky waters of the the Milky Way. And the idea that the star is that which is between dwells between them. Yeah, and there is a kind of quality of well there isn't a crossing the abyss quality just like the priestess and there's kind of like also this this idea of a star that you as a sighting mechanism that draws you you know towards it or gives you something to guide by Mm. but that also implies like you are here and that is there you know the self and the other or you're here and you're trying to get somewhere to some ideal um that you aren't currently in Mm-hmm. Which is almost how you might define hope, which is you know a quality right. of the star. Yeah, and then for the emperor card, as far as considering that as between Chakma and Tiferet, as Waite might have for the Rider Waite Smith, you can kind of think of that as a father son opposition, mm-hmm. and yep. also um, I was kind of thinking of it, trying to think of it as like the ruler and the ruled, but. I think it's more about like the sovereign versus the idea of sovereignty, which you get in Tiferet, right? So there's this principle that of governance in Hokma that there can be a leader and a father and a ruler, but the idea that you rule yourself in Tiferet. 
It's like the difference between mundane law and divine law, too, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. And the Hierophant being the bridge between them. Well, I was talking about the Emperor, actually, but... Um, ah, from Hokma to Tiferet, but but yes, and I think that there's. I, I, there's I was a, actually thinking of Hokma to Hesed, you know, that idea of divine law in in Hokma and and the mundane law, yeah, in Hesed and the bridge between them being the hierophant. Well, I think that's also true. I mean, I think that for the emperor between Hokma and Tiferet, you have ideas of sovereignty, and between Hokma and Hesed and the hierophant, you have ideas of adoration or worship you know, mm. and the transmission of the divine from in this direct line in the pillar of force, you know, from Chakma, the original sort of impulse of the divine to Chesed, which is a more mediated, bridge-like, hierarchical version of the divine. And when we talk about the descent of spirit as represented, for example, in dove symbolism, which we see throughout the tarot, that's something that I associate with that path. Mm. You know, the pillar of force is, I think of it as taking spirit and channeling it into increasingly accessible human-sized bits. Yeah. (laughs) And concepts. Increasingly dense things. Right. So twos, it's interesting. uh, If you think about the twos of tarot, you know, they each have visually, both in Rider Waite Smith and Thoth and in Tabulum and D, we, we're dealing with real questions of symmetry, uh, how that's represented visually. You know, I mean, I think in the Rider Waite Smith twos, you know, I was sort of thinking about the those self and other two party transactions. So, you know, in the two of wands, we have the conqueror and, and that which he conquers in mm-hmm. the two of cups which is the only two that actually has two people in it you know we have um to love and be loved you know each one each person experiences both and then in the two of swords the lord of peace you know we have the idea that the mind can accommodate not only its own idea but somebody else's and that's what allows for peace the idea that two ideas can be held equally in the mind Right, that parties. all doctrines are valid. Right. And then finally, in the two of discs or pentacles, the Lord of Change, you know, it's almost like you can exchange material things between yourself and another, and that you can uh, you can arrange for equal exchanges of value within the context of that card. I also think it's interesting in the Thoth one, you know, that you have those Dextro and Levo rotatory forces. <laughs> it's striking just looking at them all laid out visually, yeah. just because like the wands and swords ones are are so very composed of all straight lines, whereas mm-hmm. then you've got in the cups and discs, you've got all these swirls Curbies. and curves. Yeah, curvy lines and swirled lines, which I think we talked about at some point. Um, I know we did. (laughs) Yeah, the idea that curvy lines represent in some way a feminine force. Which it does make sense if you think of curves as being circles and straight lines as being, you know, lines. So the line in the circle, you do have the whole pillar and void thing going on. (laughs) Yes, you do. (laughs) And then we have the kings or knights associated with Chokmah, those male principles. So, um, and I think you see it particularly in the Thoth ones, the idea of knights as being the swift impulse, you know, the initiatory energy. Yeah, all the knights have that. Well, almost all the knights, except for Discs. He's kind of slow, but they all have this kind of uh, quality of being kind of inflaming and initiating and kind of bursting out, you know. Yeah, and... You know, I was having a conversation with one of our listeners last night, Alex, the same one we played Kabbalistic Eights with in, at Theoretus Genii. Anyway, so he was saying, I don't get how, I'm paraphrasing, I don't get how, you know, knights are supposed to have this impulsive, initiating energy, and yet they're also mutable. And my answer I don't really know that I have an answer other than that they are mutable in the sense that they pass away quickly. But you kind of have to use the qualities of each system without trying to turn them into the same thing, you know? Yeah. Um, 
the initiatory energy of Chachma plus the the mutable energy of endings, um, you kind of have to take the evanescence from both of them without trying to say they're exactly the same. Yeah, it's interesting. The cardinal energy is the only thing they lack because they have fixed right. signs for their shadow decan and, and mutable signs for their two main decans, I guess you'd call them. And mm-hmm. so the only thing they lack is that cardinal energy. But maybe perhaps it's a compensatory thing. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And when you think about Bina, I mean, when you think about the queens, they've got both the cardinal and mutable energy, mm-hmm. which is interesting. And I think kings of Rider Wade Smith, although we don't have that same motion represented on the card, we don't see horses the way we do in the Thoth and in Tabula Mundi decks. What we do see is these throne kings, which are in the language of this deck, an archetype for leadership, the mm. idea that they're in charge and that they have the um, perspective, the empowerment to begin things. Yeah, right. It's slightly different in each element, probably, because the kings or knights are connected to Keter and through the Yod, right? Because they're the body of the Yod and the Keter is the is the tip of the Yod. There's this sense of, I almost want to say, responsibility for making sure that the source of things is transmitted to others. You know, that there's an overarching principle at work that needs to be disseminated to the rest of what they rule over. So, for example, the king of king of discs or pen, knight of discs or king of pentacles in very real terms is responsible for making sure everybody's fed. <laughs> yeah. You know? yep. There's there's something to be said about that for each of these knights or kings, that they are responsible for getting the ball rolling. Although and they you kind of see the um, the connection with Keter in their names only in the in the the Knight of Wands because that's the I guess in a mm-hmm. sense that's the only one that has a connection. You know what I'm saying? Mm, I know um, what you're saying. Yeah, be, being the first one and all. If you look at their titles, you know the discs is wide and fertile land, and the mm-hmm. the swords is Lord of Winds and Breezes. But if you look at the Knight of Wands, it's flames and lightning. And to me, that lightning mm-hmm. is that connection with Keter and the 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 first yeah. spark that yeah, of creation on, kind of on, energy. On the, whether the, you view the four suits as four separate trees of their own, or whether you do it as the uh, as the four world model within one tree, right? So right. So yep. then, and the kind of mm-hmm. idea that fire and spirit have a connection with each other. There's kind of that double duty thing going on. Yeah. So in that title, for me, the the lightning is the spirit part. Yeah, and also, actually, if you look at the Knight of Wands and Thoth, there is something in the imagery. You know, it sort of narrows to a point up towards the top of the card that seems to point as if to Keter, you know, which we don't see so clearly in uh, the other night cards of Thoth. Yeah, sort of like there's in the background, there's sort of a fiery shape that extends up to the upper right of the card. And the... Oh, yeah. Yeah, I see that. Yeah, behind the head of the knight. It sort of narrows to a point. Right, to a point. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Of course it does. Yeah. You could there's so many layers you could start digging into the decans of each of the knights but again then we'd be here all day and they already yeah. have their own episodes. They have so. their own episodes. Yeah, and I'm just sort of thinking about why they are so ephemeral. You know, there is the idea that they're emerging out of the invisible really from Keter. So And the idea that they haven't yet contacted form, you know. Yeah, they are um that's right. I mean, they're they're going they're from spirit. The, they're from, they're they're going from the concealed of the concealed to you know to this first sphere of consciousness, and you know it's almost as though that step expends all the energy available. <laughs> yeah, you know, if you think of them as cognate with the twos, it's that first manifestation of the element, and yet it can't stay there. It's got to right. continue on and through the whole expression. I kind of looked a little bit at my spreadsheet to see how the twos have appeared. And of course, I've gotten a lot of twos in my life, as you have, and as anyone who's done tarot has. And one thing I've noticed, well, in readings, that is that the two tends to represent the real beginning of things. 
you know, mm-hmm. the actual concrete steps that you take to begin something as opposed to having the idea to do it, which is more like the ACE. Right. As opposed to the potential, there's actual emergence of something. Right. It's sort of like one of my favorite one to den models is like when you're making something, cooking something in the kitchen. And it's like the ace is having the idea because you're hungry. But the two is actually, you know, getting out the ingredients (laughs) like it's really going to happen. You know, what I looked at, I looked up to see if I'd had combinations of twos because I thought would that would be a relatively pure expression of the energy of twos. And one thing that I've noticed happens a lot when I get combinations of twos is that I have a lot of interactions, one-on-one interactions, which you would kind of expect, like emailing somebody or corresponding back and forth with somebody or receiving packages or, you know, talking and listening. There's an interchange and a quality of mutuality that seems to happen a lot um, in the context of a two for me. Another thing that I've noticed with twos in particular is sometimes it it, kind of depends on context, how you take them, whether you consider, like you can consider the two as being pretty much as high as you can get in the sense of, you know, Hokma being the, the very first and purest expression of the element, or you can consider it as being like low, like mm-hmm. a low card, like, yeah. oh, it's only a two, it's you know what I two. mean? Yeah. And that's something I've kind of thought about in the context of pages or princesses as well. I mean, you know, because we often think, especially if you come from a Rider Wade Smith background, you think of the page as being quite powerless and not having a great deal of agency. But on the other hand, if you think of the princesses and father in your deck, you think of them as having, you know, kind of the ultimate culmination of the suit. Right. Like if you see, and it's the same kind of idea with the twos, like if it's a question of, of money or materiality and you get the two of discs, are you going to say, wow, this is, you know, this is great. This is like the highest expression of the pentacle suit I can get. Are you going to say, ah, it's small change? Yes, (laughs) exactly. And I think one of the things about twos is that they are rich in potential, (laughs) you know, and something I think about pages as well. They're, they're wealthy in, in all the years they have ahead of them. Right. And same, same thing. Like you could apply that with the two of cups. Does that mean, you know, this is the highest of love, you know, or is it just, it's the beginning. Yeah. 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 Is it ultimate love or is it a, a the you know? Yeah. Is it an Yeah. It's it's interesting like do you consider it high or low, you know? <laughs> and I right. guess it's all depends on context. And it's because I think this is the kind of paradox that we have because we live we're creatures of linear time. We have to look at things either as beginnings or endings. You know, Relative, and yeah. And that's something that's a characteristic of the two. It's not something, you know, the aces yep. exist outside of time, but since the twos directly imply a comparison, a linear timeline, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you have to, you end up having to um, adopt perspectives from one end or the other. It's the gaze and the viewpoint. It's something that is almost impossible to get away from. And it's hard sometimes, and I was reading about this in the context of non-dualism in a memoir by a monk yesterday, you know, who's, who had led a very sheltered life and then deliberately placed himself out in the world and to discover what it was like to have to react to everything, <laughs> you know, you know, being in a filthy train station with yeah, all these having things to cook your own your food and pay for things. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, and just being aware of how that forces you to have a subjectivity, how it forces you to react and judge and, you know, and constantly be in tension with the other when the ideal for someone in that context is to be able to rise above or erase those differences and distinctions. So that is the nature of twos. It's just interesting to think about in terms of like, we live in a moment where there's a lot of division and polarity. And I can't help but think that that is part of the dark nature of twos, you know, the fallen nature of a world where things are separate. (laughs) Mm. On that note. (laughs) (laughs) 
anyway, we should probably wrap it up unless there's something obvious that we've missed. I'm sure there's lots of things that we've missed, but yeah, we can only do so much. We can only do so much. So overall, I guess we've talked about twos as as self and other balance, reflection, opposites and their connection the observer and the observed, and the gaze, but also these directional concepts like the eruption of insight, force, uh, the archetypal masculine activity versus passivity. Right, dynamic versus receptive. You know, and in in the symbolism, we see choices, crossroads, challenges, mirrors, equilibrium. All right. So this has been our episode on the number two. I feel like this is Sesame Street. (laughs) Brought to you by the number two. (laughs) Brought to you by the number two and the letter bet. (laughs) Yes, and the letter bet, exactly, which we didn't even talk about, but that's okay. Refer to the Magus or Magician episode for that. And we will be back next time with the three, our last of the supernal sephirot above the abyss. Okay. See you then.